Welcome to Future of Tech, hosted by Avishai Sharlin, Division President of Amdocs Technology. In this podcast, Avishai sits down with some of the most innovative minds in technology to learn how they are disrupting the present and what kind of impact they hope to have in the future. From the machine learning programs that are solving some of the world's biggest problems to what AI can do to help fight biological bottlenecks in human thinking, no topic is off limits. So sit back, relax, and maybe take some notes because what you hear on this show might just be a glimpse into the future. In today's professional world, longevity is rare. Switching from one company to another, or even one industry or skill set to a new one is commonplace. So hearing that Joe Atkinson has been with PwC for nearly 30 years should give you pause. He's a unicorn in his own right, and through almost three decades with one company, he has seen how digital disruption happens, what innovation means, and how a company can survive if it leans into the ways the world and technology changes around it. Joe is now the Vice Chair, Chief Products and Technology Officer at PwC. And on this episode of Future of Tech, he explains that innovation needs to be fostered and encouraged, and that it is a company's job to incentivize employees to grow and advance their skills in order to lift up the entire organization. But how do you do that? And how do you measure your success and the ROI of digitally enabling employees? Joe answers those questions and more, including how automation will play a role in future digital transformations and why he believes that AI will have the greatest impact on the future of work. Enjoy this episode. Future of Tech is brought to you by Amdocs Tech. Amdocs Tech is Amdocs's R&D and technology center, paving the way to a better connected future by creating open, innovative, best-in-class products and continuously evolving the way we work, learn, and live. To learn more about Amdocs, visit the Amdocs technology page on LinkedIn. So, hello, Joe. Um, and welcome to a new episode of Future of Tech. Today, my guest is uh, Joe Atkinson, Chief Products and Technology Officer at PwC. Welcome, Joe. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you here. And uh, we're going to speak about many, many things. But uh, maybe before we start, a few words about yourself. Sure. So, uh, as you shared, I'm the Chief Products and Technology Officer at PwC. I've had the great privilege of enjoying now a 27-year career with PwC. So over that time, I've had lots of different roles in the firm. Prior to my current responsibility, I was the technology, media, and telecom consulting leader. And then I became the chief digital officer and most recently the chief products and tech officer. So I uh, have been spending a lot of time on digital topics with clients and on transformation broadly. And uh, it's just been a great privilege to enjoy so many interesting roles over my time with PwC. So, Joe, some of our audiences are not, uh, were not born when you started working for uh, PwC. <laughs> um, and my question to you is, how, how did it all start? And how did you find yourself touching technology to start with? Well, my early clients were in the telecom space. So I used to do a lot of work around customer billing systems and uh, the way that 
telephone calls used to be operating over, over complex networks, uh, what looked like complex networks at the time in comparison <laughs> to the networks we're all dealing with today. I suppose they were a little bit easier to deal with. But I always, I always remember explaining to people that in the days of, this will date me now, so I'm just going to go all in on how old I am. But in the early days, uh, not just the early days, the recent days of telecom prior to digital networks, when your telephone was connected to somebody else to have a phone call, you were physically connected, meaning the, the switching of the systems actually connected your twisted pair of copper at your home through a whole series of switches and network elements to a twisted pair of copper in somebody else's home. And understanding the complexity of that and the regulatory rules around that all gave me an opportunity to dig into how technology gets deployed at large scale. And obviously, the technology we're talking about now is very different than the technology then. But it gave me a really interesting foundation and, frankly, a passion for figuring those things out. And so that was, that was really how it all started. Uh, the moment I figured out that that's how those things worked, I wanted to learn more. And then watching the systems um, continue as uh, obviously networks became much more digitized. They became more defined by software than hardware. And as companies dealt with the advent of the internet and the broad based scale that, that that delivered and required, those were all just fascinating topics to me. And I had the good privilege of having clients that were in those spaces that, that I was able to help during all those, those periods of change. Yep. Can you share... You know, during the, um, as you said, almost three decades, probably the role and what will, you were dealing with changed over the years. How did the company change through those years? Yeah, one of the things I love about, about PwC, and um, you know, some people know the, the history of the firms, and, and many people obviously don't, but PwC has been around for 170 years. So you think about an organization that has seen change we all go through a global pandemic, PwC has been around uh, for the last pandemics. You think about organizations that have navigated through global conflict and organizations that have survived through economic turmoil. PwC has been through all of that over those 170 years and all in a partnership model, which I think is particularly powerful. It's an organization of people with a shared interest and an ownership interest in the company. And so the great thing that I often think about with PwC and often experience is that you think about the power of entrepreneurialism to fuel innovation and change. You think about why startups thrive in a time of disruption and recognizing we are a very large organization with our own degrees of complexity and bureaucracy and the things that, that develop over, over big organizations lifetime. Our ability to break that down, to rethink it, to refresh it, to reposition it um, has been remarkable, even over my three decades. And um, watching the firm really engage with our clients, because our clients see it, right? And we're, we're spending the time with our clients, our clients across all the different sectors and geographies, et cetera. And the organizational ability to, to kind of soak in the knowledge and learnings of our clients' experiences in the market and first and foremost, obviously, use that knowledge and experience to help our clients navigate all that uncertainty, give them perspective that individually they may not have, but also to, to bring that back to the firm and reshape the way that we're addressing the market so that we can be most helpful to our clients. And that kind of virtuous circle really unlocks a degree of entrepreneurialism and, and a startup mindset in a big organization that I think is really rare today. But it's one of the things I think that has powered PwC's ability to change over my time with them. 
So talking about change, you mentioned that your previous role was about uh, the digital um, ecosystem. What, what was the uh, change the company went through uh, becoming a, um, a digital company? I think the biggest start to that was recognizing the why behind what, what was even the case for change is where I would start. And for us, the case for change was built on what our clients were telling us. Our clients were expecting us to innovate as they had for a long time. They were expecting us to tech enable our service delivery to them in a different way than we had previously. But they were also expecting us to manage our cost and to be good partners to them and where we provide assurance or other services that are compliance related to be cost effective in the way that we provide those services. So those, those client pressures then combined with what our people expected. And we have the good fortune of hiring people at every stage of their career. We hire people that have old dogs like me, 20, 30 plus years in their careers. We have people that are starting their careers, obviously a big part of our model uh, and everywhere in between. But what, what our people told us unanimously was that they, they wanted to be equipped to navigate what was happening around them. And that was the digital disruption, the pace of change, all of these things that we talk about as constant students of innovation. Our people looked around and said, I need, I need some help navigating through that. I, I want my, my employer to help me learn the skills so that I can be best prepared to be successful through all this disruption. So that combination, that client expectations and people expectations all created the basis for us to, to step back and say, what do we need to do here? to best position PwC and our people to serve our clients and continue that pace of innovation in a, in a constructive way. So that was the basis. And for us, um, that came down to a couple of really, I'll say, very simple things to say, but obviously hard things to do. We believed as an employer that we had a degree of obligation to provide a benefit to our people, similar to a retirement benefit or a 401k or um, healthcare benefits, a benefit to our people to upskill them. Uh, now, obviously, our people have a shared responsibility there. They've got to lean into that. They've got to take advantage of those benefits. But we believed we had an obligation to make it available. And I think that was a very innovative point of view at the time, that an employer's responsibility is to help their people upskill through a very uncertain time and then provide the dollars and the resources behind it to make it valuable and relevant to them. And so we, we did exactly that. We put a very significant investment, about $3 billion around the world, into our people's upskilling and, and uh, development. And we basically told them that if they leaned into the assets that we had, we would do everything we could to make sure they weren't left behind during this time of disruption and innovation. And what, what that yielded for us and for them was, um, frankly, a greater benefit than we anticipated. What our people saw was a meaningful commitment to their future, frankly, whether their future was at PwC or wherever their career would take them. And as a result of them seeing that and recognizing that it wasn't just a business driver of, I want to lower costs or I want to automate time away, but it was a business driver of relevance and value. The fact that they saw that, I think, created and engendered some trust between the employer and the employee in that environment. And they leaned in like crazy. They took advantage of the assets. They pushed us to make more available. They pushed us to bring the capabilities up further and to deliver them even further along the, the value chain, if you will. And I think that combination of the push, the trust that they had in the why we were doing what we were doing, 
um, their eagerness to take advantage of it and our willingness to invest at scale created some really amazing outcomes for us. Before we talk more about upskilling, maybe a few more words about the challenge itself. So can you elaborate a bit about, okay, we were at point X and what was the challenge? Because it's not that trivial to everybody is saying it's a digitized economy, but what does it mean? How can you illustrate a bit better the challenge and, and what needs to be addressed? Yeah, it's a phenomenal, phenomenal question. I have said often that I actually think digital and digitizing and transformation, that those words are probably some of the most overused words in the business vernacular. And um, frankly, unfortunately, they often get used without meaning behind them. Let's digitize because isn't digitizing great. Where we saw the problem was in the way work gets done. And I think that that's a really important point. And let me give you a really specific example. So our portfolio of businesses, our assurance business, our tax business, our advisory business, they all have one thing in common. They have many things in common, but one thing that's, that stands out is all of the work that we do with clients generally requires us to exchange data with clients. It may be small amounts of data, but more often in large enterprises, it's very large amounts of data. And when we looked at our engagements, when we were hired by clients to perform services, if you looked at those engagements, somewhere between 20 to 40% of the time was generally being spent preparing data for analysis, receiving the data, making sure that the data had the information in it that was necessary, making sure that the reference point uh, that were necessary to make sense of the data were available, that the integrity of the data was there, and that the, the data was literally formatted and prepared for the analysis that the clients had hired us for. Most clients, I think, would say, we kind of expect you to do that. We don't see a ton of value there, right? Uh, we see a value in the analysis. So if we could get the preparation time done down in a situation like that from 20 to 40% of the engagement time to something, say, half of that, we believe that a couple things would happen. One, our people would have a much, much better experience because the reality is when they're doing all that data cleansing in our line of work, that's often done at 10 o'clock at night while you're exchanging emails with a client and saying, hey, you missed this piece of data or I missed this piece of data. Can you resend me this file? Can I resend you that file? It's grueling, terrible, painful work that nobody enjoys and clients don't value and our people hate. So if we could reduce some of that, we could unlock their creativity, their energy. We could frankly give them a better work-life balance. We could give them a better uh, integration of home and work in the current environment. And by doing that, we could actually increase the value to clients because now more of the time that the client was paying for was going to be related to the analysis and the insights that the client wanted in the first place. And our people will find, have found that to be very rewarding because now their time and energy is spent on the higher value activities. Most of our folks did not um, go to university or, or have meaningful careers so that they could do data scrubbing. That's an important function. But at, this, at the same time, they, they do that in order to get to an outcome. And that, that piece of unlocking capacity, reducing time, making more efficient and tech-enabled what can be more efficient and more tech-enabled, so that the people aspect, the actual really rare resource in the mix, is unlocked and directed to the high-value activity, that to me was the core of what it meant to digitize for us. It was equipping our people to do things differently. And then I'll, I'll share one other point and that may prompt some follow-ups. But when we started to look at our digital efforts and how we digitize what we called inside the firm Your Tomorrow, when we started to look at that, 
one of the things that we recognized early on was there were going to need, we were going to need significant investments in technology platforms. So think of all the cloud-based technologies that you'd expect and CRM systems and productivity systems and personnel and management systems and talent and all of those things. And we characterize those as business-led innovations and business-led transformations. And I would say they look like the, respectfully, the typical center-led top-down transformations that you see in most organizations. Put in a big set of objectives, put in a massive amount of technology underneath it, train people in that technology, and hopefully you get some productivity and performance improvements. And generally speaking, with the quality of tech that's out there today, you do, although it's really hard, as, as this team knows as better than anybody, to get the adoption and engagement where, where you ultimately want it. On the other side, you have what we characterize as citizen-led innovation. And citizen-led innovation for us, think of it as, you know, you could, lots of people call that different ways, uh, technology at the edge or democratization of technology. Citizen-led innovation for us was how do I put tools and technologies in the hands of our people so that they can see where the work needs to change and have both the, the acumen and the tools and the training to change it, as opposed to waiting for me from the center or the leadership or top down to say, hey, uh, team, I really need you to rethink process A or, or activity B. And that to us was a logical connection on uh, really how do you help people have that degree of, of self-directed innovation that most of our people look for without, frankly, getting chaos, which is I'm just going to use tools to go do interesting things, but I'm not actually going to get business benefits and business outcomes. We knew we needed to direct it to the places where the business outcomes would be the most significant. So we put it in the hands of our people. Um, we provided them some very innovative sharing mechanisms so that we could see what they were doing and they could share that and scale that with their colleagues around the country and around the world. And that unlocked massive amounts of capacity for us. And because that capacity was unlocked, our ability to take on more work, our ability to deliver more efficiently, our ability to create greater value, um, we saw that happening all over the place. And so it's, it's a long answer to your question, but I think the important headline of it is that when people are well-equipped with the right technology and tools and they have the supports to make it come to life, most people want to make their work more efficient. Most people want to make their work more valuable. And if you give them the opportunity to do that, they're going to deliver for you, I believe, every time. So a follow-up question is, you've mentioned earlier the fact that uh, as a living organism for more than 100 years, you're always recruiting uh, new people to join the, the firm. Now, obviously, you're, you're having you know, Gen Zs and Gen Ys, uh, people uh, joining you. All of those grew in a different, completely different ecosystem. They are used to a completely different set of tooling and, and behavior. How those assisted you in transforming the company to, uh, to become different? Was it an obstacle or was it a, a good thing? I think it was a very good thing. What we benefit from with that channel of talent coming into the firm to start their careers is we benefit from, a, frankly, multiple generations now that are challenging the status quo. And they're doing it generally, my experience has been, they're doing it very constructively. The way I, the way I describe, I'll come back to my example, where when I started my career, if I was sitting in a conference room at the office, because of course we were at the office, and I was sitting in the conference room at two in the morning exchanging a data file with a client, that was kind of what was expected. And I didn't necessarily think that I should question that. 
that is not the experience you have with the millennials and the Gen Zs and, and, and beyond. And I think that's a very good thing. I think they're smarter than we are in that respect. And the ability that, that somebody starting their career has to ask a very simple question, why are we doing it that way, is a fuel for organizations to innovate. Of course, you have to redirect sometimes. And of course, you have to make sure you're kind of in the channels of what's, what's beneficial to the organization, depending on what your organizational goals are. But I think the power of citizen-led innovation, the way that we've unleashed it at PwC, the power of that is you direct that question constructively, as opposed to allowing it to be a vent for frustration. And many organizations have suffered from that reality that if you have, frankly, anybody from any generation who's asking the question, why are we doing it that way? We've all heard the answer over our careers. Well, we've always done it that way. Could you just get on with it and get it done, please? That would be great. And when you can create in an organization a mindset that there's a worthwhile investment to answer that question in a meaningful way, why are we doing it that way? Is there a better way to do it? Then I think, I think organizations can un- unlock a whole lot of value in their own systems, their own processes, their own people. Good. So let's go back to upscaling sure. and let's speak a bit about uh, automation. Okay. So how do you see automation uh, playing a role in upskilling an organization? And do you see, you know, um, I don't know, bots replacing some of the activities and then uh, us human being pushed aside? Are you asking me if robots are coming for our jobs? Is that the question we're, we're covering? Yeah, more or less, but in a more subtle way. <laughs> <laughs> so it's funny. It's, um, I use this analogy that I call Aunt Sally at Thanksgiving all the time. So imagine a, an individual that has just gone to university for accounting. In the U.S., that requires a master's degree now, so you have to get 150 credit hours, so they've probably gone to school for at least five years. In the U.S. model today, they probably borrowed quite a bit of money, so they may owe uh, the banks, the, the loan agencies, hundreds of thousands of dollars in some cases, tens of thousands of dollars. And they're sitting at Thanksgiving next to Aunt Sally and proudly proclaiming that they are uh, studying accounting. And Aunt Sally says to them, well, you know, I just read something in the New York Times that bookkeeping is going to get automated. So what are you going to do in three years when your job is automated away? An article that was uh, written by a robot, yeah? That's, that's right. That's right. <laughs> the reality is that it's the, the old Amara's law, if you remember that, that reference, that we have a tendency to overestimate the impact of technology in the short term and underestimate it in the long term. I think there is a bit of that happening right now. But the other piece is that human judgment and insight is really, really difficult to replicate with bots. And to me, the, the opportunity that you have for all of us is to get comfortable with the technology to help us do more. As opposed to the idea that technology will replace jobs, what technology is really doing, and bots are certainly a great example, is it's replacing tasks that are part of the portfolio of tasks that any one of us perform. So my, in my example of, of the poor student carrying a ton of debt who thinks that Aunt Sally just told them that they've invested in a terrible idea, the answer to that question is really, well, I, I expect to be using bots in my work extensively so that I can deliver more. And that's been our experience to date. So we have developed across PwC, we have developed more than 7,000 technology assets, including thousands of bots that our people have built, citizen-led innovation, 
or people have built and they're using it in their day-to-day work. And as they use it in their day-to-day work, what's happening is it's displacing the time that they would have spent on something else and in a positive way, meaning that they're now unlocking that capacity to deliver, um, frankly, what they probably came to the firm in the first place to deliver. So I do think that, that bots, technology overall, machine learning and AI, they're going to massively impact the way we all do work. Um, I think that the curve is um, accelerating there. Uh, while I do think that we have a tendency to overestimate that impact in the short term, I think we're very quickly gaining speed there. But I don't think that you'll see um, massive uh, replacement of jobs that require professional judgment, jobs that require uh, application of professional integrity. I think you're going to continue to need people to do that. So one other interesting uh, phenomenon is that you probably drove digital transformation through different verticals in the industry. Did you find this um, or be a different behavior between the, the, the verticals or all of them are the same? Did you find uh, specific takeaways from those journeys? Yeah, it's another really interesting question. There's definitely commonality to human behavior, regardless of the industry that, that you're in and the industry verticals. Having said that, you do have some industries that just by the nature of their workforce, the nature of their products, the nature of their customer base, I would say are are generally more prepared to adopt innovation and technology than others, and that difference I think uh, both creates obviously some challenges, but it creates a lot of opportunity as well, because nobody really has a choice anymore. And so what I what I have not seen across the verticals is anybody saying this doesn't apply to us. I think what you see is everybody saying we've got to figure out how to unlock this for ourselves. And the answer, uh, the answer to that question is maybe more complex in some industry verticals than others. And again, I'll, just to maybe, maybe bring it to life, I'll uh, give you a couple of examples. I think in some industries with um, embedded physical operations, manufacturing, distributed field technologies, um, utilities, places where you have a lot of people that need to be out and about doing things then the challenge becomes very, very different in terms of adopting technologies at scale because you don't have quite the same controlled environment that you have in other places. In more of the you know, software space, um, the high-tech space, the media entertainment, um, financial services, what you see is, um, I think, a, a very different model of adoption. Different challenges, perhaps. Uh, but a different model of adoption because you don't have the same kind of physical installation challenges that some of these other businesses do. So I think the virtualization of the business overall is probably related. There's probably a mathematical formula in here somewhere, but the virtualization of the businesses overall, there's a relationship there to the ability and the speed with which they can digitize their organization. Yeah. And when speaking about those different, uh, you know, transformation, how do you measure a transformation being successful one? You know, many people are looking, and as you said, digitize is, is so widely exploited as a word. So how do, as a business person, I can sit down and say, okay, this was a successful journey? Yeah, it's a, um, it's a challenge. And, I, and having had the, the great fortune to talk to a lot of our clients, I can tell you that some have got this figured out and some are struggling, just as you'd expect. But let me talk to the ones that are struggling first. When you talk to organizations and you ask them about their digital transformation strategies, 
There's a couple of attributes that I would say are common to the organizations that struggle to answer the question that you've just posed. One of the attributes is if you ask them about the strategy of the organization, what's your, what is the strategy of the company as a whole? Um, they will often start to list off a handful of things. It might be you know, great customer success. It might be great employee experience. It might be market penetration, the kinds of things that most of us would think about in terms of the top level of the strategy. And then they'll say something like, and we want to do all that in a digital way. And you'll see like an asterisk on the strategy slide. Or you'll see a, please refer to Appendix 7 for our digital skills. And that won't get you there. It just simply will not get you there. Because organizations and people, again, human nature can be, can be pretty consistent on these things. People follow the North Stars, right? And if the North Star doesn't um, encourage or require them to adopt different skills to deliver on the outcomes, or it just suggests those different skills to deliver on the outcomes, but it doesn't embed them in the way that the business is getting done, then the likelihood you're going to get meaningful business benefits, I think, goes way, way down. The second piece is outcome orientation. So when I talk to um, colleagues that are in the transformation offices and companies, and I ask them a question of what are the drivers of value in the organization? So take a public company in the U.S., Public company in the U.S. is often uh, quarterly having a conversation with their investors through the analyst community, and they're talking about what the outcomes are. And uh, if you take a public company in the U.S. and you look at that outcomes discussion that they're having, having with the analyst community, and the transformation leadership cannot talk about why what they're doing is going to deliver improvements or performance improvements to the assets that are being described or the outcomes that are being described to the market, then I think you have to push pause and ask yourself the serious question, are we actually integrated with the strategy of the organization? I had a client who was talking about um, the cost to build and cost to deliver a particular asset. And when, when I asked them the question about, well, tell me how your digital strategy is going to reduce that cost to build or the time to deliver that asset, there was a bit of a pause on the team. And to their credit, they said, you know what, we haven't drawn the line quite as brightly and clearly as we need to. They believed from their seat that they would. And when you, when you got into the details of their program, I think they were actually going to help it. But if you're sitting on the other side of the table, if you will, or the other side of the organization, and you're in the business someplace, if you don't see that line connected very, very brightly, then you're not going to pursue the innovations and the technologies that are going to deliver a different outcome. So that's a broad question. Now, let me get to your specific question of how do you know when it's happening? So for us, when I think about the PwC model, um, we track the ROI on our investments very, very closely and very carefully. We're a partnership model. Uh, in a partnership model, I don't have the luxury of loading up a lot of debt on the balance sheet. Most of our partners hate that. So we have a, uh, generally a disdain for, for a lot of debt on the balance sheet. If I want to fund it, if I wanted to fund an initiative, I, I'm basically going to my partners and I'm saying, hey, would you, would you kick in to help us deliver this? And in that environment, as you'd expect, the partners expect you to provide return. And that return's got to be to the benefit of our people, the benefit of our clients, and the benefit of our partners. So when you look at that um, kind of collection of expectations, that all prompted us to track return very, very carefully. And for us, that, comes, that shows itself in a couple of ways. If you take my, my senior associate in Cleveland example and 20 to 40% of the time associated with this being data, 
if I can reduce our data preparation, if I can reduce data preparation, then one of two things should happen. My engagements should become more efficient, which means my profitability measures on the engagements will improve. Or my clients will actually get more value out of the same uh, investment. So maybe the profitability of the engagement doesn't improve, but my client satisfaction, client happiness scores will start to move up. And uh, we tracked all of those very, very carefully. Um, We also tracked how many hours of work had been displaced in terms of capacity that had been unlocked. Um, To date, we were tracking somewhere north of 7 million hours of capacity that we've unlocked through some of the innovations that have been deployed by our citizen-led innovations, as well as our business-led. That combination all should ultimately improve financial performance at the macro value, at the macro level, right? So if we were a public company, it would be the public company share value, it would be earnings per share. And my, my offer would be, or my challenge to organizations would be, if you're not seeing those move, you have to ask yourself the question, are we really driving true innovation and change? Or are we just talking about painting digital around uh, to make ourselves feel more digital when in fact, we're not actually changing the underlying work? Where you see it, whether it's in um, the number of people that, that are directed to the lower value activities, whether you see it in the retention of your employees, whether you see it in the quality measures of your clients, whether you see it in the defect rates of your products, whether you see it in the cost to deploy or speed to deploy um, new products and technologies, I think that's going to be heavily, heavily dependent on the organization. But I would, I would propose that you really should not be creating new measures to determine digital value. You should be looking at the core measures of value of the organization and making sure your digital efforts are making them better. Yep. And you've mentioned data. Clearly, data is, is, a, is a source of power. Do you see other, I would call it, uh, you know, sources or emerging uh, powers in, in the digitized ecosystem? The data is definitely a source of power. Um, I, think, I think digitally equipped people is probably underestimated in terms of a force of power in digital ecosystems. And what I mean by that is, and I'll come back to a place where we started at, at PwC. When we started to look at who did we need to equip with digital skills, there was, a, there was exactly the kind of strategic conversation that probably most of the listeners would expect. Who was in need of them? How could we manage our investment to direct the invested dollars to the most beneficial employees, if you will, the folks that would drive the best outcomes? And we confronted a, a fairly uncomfortable reality, which was it was very, very difficult to tell who really needed them. We're a professional services organization. You would think that we would be better positioned than most to figure that out. But the reality was that many people, for a whole host of good reasons, develop their digital skills to drive their own career forward, but you don't necessarily see it in the traditional learning and education measures. So you have to look for it in different places. That challenge caused us to make a practical decision, and we decided to bring digital skills to everybody. It didn't matter what your tenure was, what your title was, what your role in the firm was. It really did not matter what you did. We believed that everybody would benefit from digital upskilling, and so we, we provided it to everyone. I think that practical response to a hard question of how do you target your investments turned out to be a phenomenal, phenomenal approach, much better than we probably would have hoped. And the reason I say that is because what it created was it created an energy among our people and a shared vision of what digital could do for the firm, such that the, the typical uh, kind of change resistors that you would, you would have in any organization 
faded away. They became, they became uh, easy to mute, if you will, because the voices advocating around them were, were so loud and in a very positive way. And, and maybe even more importantly, not muting them, but actually convincing them uh, by virtue of seeing the performance of their peers around them, that this was a good place for them to lean in. And so I recognize that your question was probably more about the different technologies that are going to be shaping us going forward. But I do think that the power of well-equipped people at scale often gets underestimated. We have a tendency to want to train departments or teams or pilots or what have you, when in fact, I think we've got to be thinking much more broadly than that. In terms of um, technologies that I think are going to be shaping it, I do have a tendency to root all things in data, frankly, and just the power that data will unlock and continue to unlock. We are, as much as I think as an organization, certainly PwC, but broadly as an industry and, and a business community, we've made a ton of progress on capturing and, and using data in responsible ways. The reality is we're at the early, early stages. You know, we're at the beginning of the, that revolution, I think not at the end of that revolution. So there's, there's still a lot more runway to go there. And then the, the other piece I would say that I think has a lot of um, potential is the uh, virtual reality and augmented reality capabilities in terms of training, in terms of experience, in terms of production, in terms of so many pieces of the business that I think can change in ways that we don't anticipate. I would like to, to talk uh, briefly about AI. What role do you see to AI and how do you see it uh, you know, progressing in, in the near future? Yeah, look, I think AI holds the promise to transform more of our world than probably just about any of the other technologies that we're talking about. I, I just think the power of that capability to, to apply to so many different problems and to speed the innovation, the problem solving, the trial and error. There's just so much there. I do bring it all back to data, though. Um, AI, machine learning, all relies on uh, highly valued, highly integrity, data with high integrity, responsible use of that data, ethical use of that data, understanding the biases in our data sets. So it's, it's one of those great opportunities that has both promise and peril. We have to get the fundamentals right in order to get the benefits right. But with a, with a general optimism about our ability to do those things, I think AI holds phenomenal promise for innovating not just business, but healthcare and medicine and the environment in so many places that I think 10 years from now, uh, maybe even five years from now, we'll look back and just be amazed at what it has unlocked for society at large. With your permission, a few, uh, maybe one personal question. Sure. Um, you know. If you speak to millennials and definitely Gen Zs, they, they always tell you after three or four years at the same company that it's been ages since they, uh, they uh, moved uh, from one company to another. And you're um, working at the same company for 27 years. What keeps you uh, excited? How, how do you get up in the morning and smile and get ignited? I love that question. Before I answer it, I'm going to tell you a quick story. I always joke about when I interview people that are starting their careers out, they all have that question. They all have it. The ones that I hire ask it in a way that doesn't make me feel like I didn't have another offer anywhere in 27 years. <laughs> uh, so I look for that. I look for that emotional intelligence in addition to the, to the recognition. I always joke that, and I think I've said it at the start, I, I plan to be here for two or three years. I thought it was a great place to start my career. 
What I came to love about the firm and what I think um, has kept me here for 27 years, and I recognize that that's probably not going to be the career path for a lot of people. Uh, but what's kept me here is that it hasn't been the same job over 27 years. Um, if we had, you know, a lot, lot longer in our time together, I would go through all the various jobs. But the reality is that one of the great benefits of being in a diverse professional services organization that serves companies in lots of different ways is that uh, anytime I was ever bored, it was usually for hours, maybe days, but it never was weeks or months. I could redirect my energy to the things that were of interest to me because our firm reflects the things that are of interest in our clients uh, because that's where we spend our time and our energy is working to serve our clients. And so that, that opportunity, I think, created a, a diverse work experience for me um, working in, you know, starting out in our assurance business, working in internal controls, doing some work in our audit clients, and then um, shifting from the telecommunications industry to the cable industry. And then as our cable industry clients started to acquire media and entertainment businesses, then I learned the media and entertainment business. And then um, that opportunity opened up uh, more technology clients for me. So suddenly I found myself uh, leading our consulting businesses in technology, media, and telecom. At the same time, the firm started to bring together our consulting businesses in the U.S., Japan, and China. So I began a journey and a, and a learning opportunity to learn the way the businesses were built and operating in Japan and China. And that's the five-minute version of 100 different examples of where the firm challenged me. And each time it did, I felt like I had an opportunity to keep growing. Um, having said that, I have lots of great colleagues that uh, worked here for, for years and then found other opportunities in industry. And, and that's another thing I love about the firm is the very nature of the business that we're in creates this amazing network of connectivity around organizations. Because I spend most of my time talking with clients outside the organization, it's a continuous feed of my learning and challenging me. And so I say often, particularly with respect to, to digital, just to come back to the topic at hand, that the, the opportunity to keep learning is not just an opportunity, it's an obligation that none of us have a choice anymore. And one of the things I've loved about the firm is that it, uh, it never gave me a choice. I was always forced to keep learning, and that's been great. That's beautiful. So let me end up with a very quick one. Are you happy, Joe? <laughs> I am happy. I appreciate you asking. Not many people ask that question, but yes, I'm very happy. I, um, look, in a, in a world with so many people facing so many challenges, I'm, I'm living a great life. I've got uh, family, I've got health, I've got stability. I realize that's not something everybody has. Uh, so not only am I happy, I'm quite grateful. Great. And I'm happy to uh, have you with us. And it was a great episode. And I thank you for your time. And uh, hopefully we'll see each other face to face in a future uh, conference. I look forward to that. Maybe they'll come back. I think they will. I think they will someday. So I look forward to it. Thank you, Joe. Take care. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Future of Tech. If you like what you heard and want more, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And if you have any comments or questions, feel free to write to our host, Avishai Sharlin, directly on LinkedIn. LinkedIn.